A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Ben Doherty, a reporter at The Guardian. For the last 12 months, I've been watching one of the most extraordinary defamation trials Australia has ever seen. It's been confronting, violent, sometimes scandalous, and the stakes have been enormous. A picture of me as stone just flaking away with bullet cracks because all I did was serve my country. That's it. And now you can hear it for the first time in Ben Robert Smith versus the media. Listen now on the Full Story podcast. This is The Guardian. Yeah, the reason why voters are so attentive in this data to election promises is that voters have been treated to a spectacle over a couple of decades of politicians abandoning election promises after the vote. It's one of the reasons why people feel, you know, disenfranchised and alienated from their representative democracy. Hello, lovely people of pods. You're listening to Australian Politics. I'm Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australia's political editor, and I am the host of the show. Welcome. I'm here today, as I am every fortnight, to analyse the latest data from the Guardian Essential poll. I'll be speaking to Peter Lewis, who runs Essential Media. And in this conversation, we're going to talk about the stage three tax cuts. Now, before anybody reaches for the smelling salts. I get that some people are sick of this debate, uh, but we posed some really interesting questions in the poll this week and we got some really interesting answers. And also in this conversation, we'll unpack why we are so interested in what happens on stage three and what people think about it. Uh, We also uh, have a chat in the rundown to the budget, which is next Tuesday, about some policy proposals that we might see. We unpack the nature of the questions that we put in this fortnight's poll. And just a reminder for regular listeners, it's often helpful if you pull up the slides uh, on the Essential Media website so that you can basically look at the charts that uh, Peter and I get into in the course of this conversation. Uh, We also have a chat about where the voice to parliament is up to. And uh, Peter Lewis, uh, well, I think, how would you describe it? It has a bit of a frolic (laughs) <laughs> on the story of Faust. Uh, this conversation was recorded on Tuesday and it was moderated by Ebony Bennett, who is the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute, and Eb's about to kick off the conversation. Uh, Catherine, first to you. I mean, it really is never a dull moment, but, you know, it does frequently feel like everything is happening all at once. <laughs> yes, yes, and uh, that that is absolutely well diagnosed. Yes, there is never a dull moment and it doesn't feel like everything's happening at once. 
particularly one week out from the budget. As Eb says, yes, the, the, the Albanese government's first budget is next Tuesday. It's always an important uh, moment for, well, it's an important uh, sort of date on the politics calendar, but this is obviously the first budget of the new government. So those budgets always set a, a tone. So I think there'll be quite a lot of interest really in how Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers manage the various myriad pressures which are sort of building up uh, as we speak. There's uh, the sort of global economic headwinds and the potential fallout uh, in Australia if uh, the major economies go into recession again. There are the spending pressures that we've uh, talked about on the show before uh, as Ebbs flagged, there was a stage three tax cut debate uh, that uh, was permitted to run for, I think it was probably just under a week in the end, where the Treasurer very obviously started tilling the ground to adjust the stage three package that provoked a rare public outbreak of dissent in the government ranks. And I think uh, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer judged that it was basically the runway was too short to deal with it in this coming budget. Now, uh, you know, the the question remains how the government might deal with it in future budgets, (laughs) and I guess we're just all going to have to wait and see on that front, and there's lots of data that we'll unpick in today's episode that sort of can, you know, help us talk through the various political upsides and traps of um, the various proposals. But anyway, so that's the budget. As Eb says, there's sort of there's usually a succession of pre-announcements. The biggest one to date has been this commitment on paid parental leave. If um, folks joining us today watch politics closely, most people will be aware that uh, women's participation in the labour market, particularly, has been a big preoccupation of Anthony Albanese's and the Labor governments. It's a sort of labour market participation story. Obviously, the enhancements to the paid parental leave scheme sort of roll out over a couple of years, none of it's instant, but it's an interesting signal and direction and it builds on, uh, you know, funding for childcare and other things that the government has prioritised both as a growth and participation initiative and also in terms of the childcare fees at least, a cost of living initiative. So we've seen that. I suspect, uh, you know, here's the scoop. I suspect we'll see a couple of pre-announcements over the next few days in uh, the energy and broadband space. I can feel that in my waters. Um, So stay tuned for for that. Uh, And then obviously we roll into into the budget next week. And And the critical thing there is obviously the government has been telegraphing there will be expenditure reductions in this budget. Uh, I did a podcast with the the Infrastructure Minister, Catherine King, last weekend where she made it clear that a bunch of discretionary grants are on the chopping block and also there will be a reprioritisation of infrastructure money, which is potentially interesting. But it's sort of how, I guess, the government balances um, cuts, investments, uncertain economic times and, you know, to sort of invoke something a bit old-fashioned, political storytelling budgets are about sort of bringing a sense of priority and purpose uh, and, uh, and, you know, to end where I started, this is the government's first budget handed down since their election victory in May. There will be two budgets this financial year. I hate to alarm people, one one in October, one next May. 
Um, but anyway, this is this is the sort of opening uh, gambit of the Albanese government's economic story. Yeah, and it has been an interesting lead up to the budget. I feel like the Treasurer has spent quite a bit of time kind of setting the stage for what the global economic circumstances are, kind of managing expectations about you know, how many goodies are going to be in here and 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 also explaining why there, there won't be many, not only with that kind of bread and butter budget terminology, but also he keeps pointing to inflation. You know, we can't risk adding to inflation with too much public spending. So there has been, I feel like, a lot of expectation management in the lead up to the budget, but equally there's just such high expectations, um, Catherine, because there is so many areas where we've seen, you know, huge underinvestment or kind of problems coming to a head kind of right at this moment, even though they've only been in government for a few months. And I'm thinking there of things like aged care and the GP crisis and things like that, you know, and then a cost of living crisis and floods on the top of it, you know. Yeah, floods, exactly. And and Hard to keep expectations down because there's so much that needs to be done as well, isn't there? <laughs> Well, it's yeah, it's it is really difficult. I mean, obviously, governing is difficult by definition, but yeah, there's a lot of pressures bearing down, as you say. This is this is the problem they face: that uh, revenue is limited, the economic conditions are tricky. They've got to manage a, a domestic inflation issue at the same time as potentially battening down for an incoming slowdown in economic growth, courtesy of global conditions. Dare we say this is a little bit like the conditions the Labor government faced back in 2007 when they when they last took office. Obviously, the global financial crisis is one thing, and this is another. But I'm I'm just saying it's the conditions are, are not spectacularly different. And and we saw too back in 2007 for folks with long memories uh, that there was there was the same level of pent up demand. It's it had been a long term coalition government. Uh, lots of legitimate uh, calls for, you know, more funding on infrastructure, more funding for services, all kinds of things. And that's, of course, what we're seeing at the opening of the Albanese government as well. Yeah, I mean, you can yeah. feel the pent-up expectation, I guess, and that's that's a problem for the government to manage in and of itself. Yeah. Um, and, Pete, I think that takes us back around to stage three and probably into some of the poll results today because, as Catherine pointed out, there probably wasn't enough runway for the stage three to make amendments to the stage three tax cuts, but still a long way to go for that debate. We've got, as Catherine mentioned, another budget between now and uh, and the end of next financial year even, and then I think it's another year until they actually come in. So quite, mm. quite a long way to go yet on that debate. Yeah, and <laughs> a lot of our polling um, this week has been to really unpack this. I guess two things just on the opening comments. The first is that I think that this is being framed as the reconciliation as opposed to the forward-looking budget. So this is looking at what the accounts look like as they come into power, how they're going to want their first range, you know, their first series of commitments and um, also where are they going to find money. Um, But I do think this behemoth of a, as I call it in today's Guardian, a Faustian pact, and I do want to talk about Faust later, um, to wave through a horrendous policy before the last election that flattens Australia's progressive tax cut tax base like never before is the pall hanging over every economic decision the government will make. 
And I don't raise this to condemn them for the choices they made. We spoke a lot about the way that Labor approached opposition and their determination to win power. But this choice was one of the decisions that guided them into power. But on most (laughs) progressive calculations, it's just an impossible policy to live with. The fact that between 48 grand and 200 grand, you're going to be paying a flat tax like 30%. So the vast majority of Australians are no longer part of a progressive tax system. And and I think they recognise that this is not something you can do lightly. I think they recognise that this was the cost of power. And I think they also recognise it's incumbent on them to find a way through. But they have made the call that in the first six months of being in power is not the time to be seen to be breaking a promise. So shall we jump into the to the poll results? We either jump into the poll results or jump into Faust. Why don't we jump into the poll results <laughs> first because it sets up my grand narrative. So the interesting thing for all this you know, turbulence really around should they or shouldn't they? It hasn't actually hit Labor's base yet or Albo's approval, 58, 26. You know, the, the, the big thing on this chart for those playing at home, essentialreport.com.au, the big jump after the election, he looked a lot more attractive in power than in opposition. Um, and he's sort of held that um, all the way through basically by a different sort of politics, which is, I think, even his critics would say, um, or his opponents would say, respectful, inclusive, and sticking to promises. Again, why it is so dangerous to, in your early days, break break one of those promises. Going into here, personal benefits from the tax changes. This is how much people think they are going to benefit from. Yes, and 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 what you will see in a lot of these questions is a lot of detail because we wanted to be very, very careful that we weren't guiding to people towards answers and there's been criticism of a number of other polls for doing so. So we probably loaded up the detail. But in short, there's only 11% of people that think they're going to be big beneficiaries, 24% none at all. There's not. This is the thing. If you go through the next few slides, there is not a massive amount of love for the changes. Look at this. It's 29 support, 27 oppose, and 44 either in the middle or not sure neutral to the question, to what extent do you support or oppose the introduction of proposed tax changes to the system? For regular visitors to poll position, you will note that I have not said support for tax cuts. My belief is calling them stage three tax cuts leads to a particular outcome in and of themselves, and they are changes to the tax system that not only cut rates, they also flatten the base, which is why I'm not prepared to call them stage three tax cuts. And then you go deeper, and I think this is where it gets interesting, so putting out more of the information, and I'll read these out um, for those on the pod. So we put four propositions to people. Individuals on higher incomes should pay a higher proportion of their income in tax than those on lower incomes, i.e. we should have a progressive tax system. 60% support, 15% oppose. Maintaining funding for education and health is more important than reducing taxes for people earning more than 200000 59% support, 12% oppose. The country can't afford to reduce taxes for high income earners due to rising inflation and the amount of national debt. 49% support, 19% oppose. And I guess the only pro-tax message, the best way to attract and keep talented people in Australia is to reduce taxes for individuals on high income. 33, 31 split with 35 down the middle. 
what that says to me is that the debate on maintaining a progressive tax system and not just running an economic policy about big tax cuts for the rich is winnable. It then comes down to a question of timing. And the reason that the time isn't now is probably the next two, if you go there. 53, 47 would say, even though the current economic situation is very different, Labor should stick with their promise to to introduce the tax changes. And if you go to the next one, it's probably the one that sort of means you've got to hasten slowly, which is it is acceptable to break an economic promise if circumstances change versus it is never acceptable to break an election promise. So it's 52-48. Again, you could say that's line ball and you could probably say a brave government would push on. But my argument, and I think the argument that Labor has accepted is that to do something like this, you need to build a, a base of goodwill and trust. You need, and you do need to take it back to the Australian people. And I think that's where Labor's finding themselves at the moment. And this is this is our bit of benchmark, the last slide. I'm asking people how they feel economically comfortable, secure, struggling in serious difficulty. If you add up that struggle and serious difficulty, you're at 45% now who are identifying as someone that's not feeling very financially secure, and that's up from 38 in June. So let me try to wrap all those into my... I did a bit of research on the story of Faust, given I was banding around the Faustian pact, um, and by research I mean Google, Wikipedia. <laughs> but it's really interesting. You get the, So the story of Faust, which is the the selling of one's soul at the crossroads for worldly benefit has been a bit of a trope of Western culture from the Goethe's story of Faust to Robert Johnson who sold his soul to be the best blues guitarist ever and ended up being one of the members of the 27 Club dying prematurely. But the story of Faust is really interesting in that So Faust was an alchemist and he does the deal with his devil to exchange his soul for a life of unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. And he conjures into being Gretchen, a fair maiden with whom Faust has his way and then a child. And then when she discovers the sordid truth of the union, she's so appalled she kills the bastard child and Faust is left to grieve his shame. That's kind of where labour is at the moment. But there is a second um, section to the Gotha epic, which is Faust ends up making his peace with the world by doing good acts. And ultimately the angels do not give his soul up to Mephistopheles. They instead allow him to transcend to heaven because of all the good work he's done since making the pact. So there is actually a story of salvation rather than a story of damnation at the heart of the Faustian pact. And so the opportunity for Labor is to do their good good deed and bring back all those progressive tax ideas that they gave away in their pursuit of power. So I've wrapped that up into a bow and that's probably one of the most tortured metaphors we've used since Billy Joel. (laughs) I was going to say Billy Joel. Sorry. Billy jo- <laughs> I do remember Billy Joel. That was a good one. But Catherine, I mean, that that is the politics of it for Labor. I, they didn't like these tax cuts at all when they were actually introduced, and it was something that they swallowed in order to try and and win. There were, you know, they identified all the problems with them initially, and as you said, with that, I, I really like that metaphor of the short runway to build a case to drop them because it is a serious thing to go back on a a promise. 
there does have to be like a public case for it, essentially, that the public is demanding they they break this promise for various reasons that Pete has somewhat outlined. But um, it's straightforward, but that doesn't mean it's an easy path for the government either. Um, no, that's right. But to folks in the chat who are a bit weary with the stage three conversation, I do apologise, but it's the reason we sort of have looked at this quite closely is it's a proxy. It, it basically, I mean, obviously it's an important thing, substantive thing in and of itself, but it's also a proxy for governing being hard if we return to where we started the conversation today. You know, the reason why voters are so attentive in this data to election promises is that voters have been treated to a spectacle over a couple of decades of politicians abandoning election promises after after the vote. It's one of the reasons why people feel, you know, disenfranchised and alienated from their representative democracy. So you know, we've seen in all kinds of ways that sort of building frustration uh, gather and manifest in all kinds of interesting ways, like the reduction in the major party vote, for example. Um, so these are really big mega trends, right? And uh, what we, what, what I do as a political editor, and what Pete does as a pollster, is try and touch down on some on some instances where we can unpack the the mega trends, right? That's the purpose for for looking at this closely. And for folks reading uh, or listening on the on the pod too, just go and have a look at the essential slides. Pete referenced before that uh, he put a lot of work into the questions that we used in order to ascertain this sort of voter opinion to basically make sure that we were getting a you know a signal rather than noise in terms of the responses back so yes now let's think about runway obviously it is as Ebs described uh the not everybody in the labor party was on board with supporting the stage three tax cuts prior to the election. It was a concerted effort to lop off the top end and basically institute a deficit levy, for example. That was a very live proposal uh, that was pursued in opposition. Now, the question is, as Peter's explained, this policy, this legacy policy, which they've agreed to as part of the small target strategy for winning an election, how do you unwind it if that's where you're going? Right, and and the government has a couple of options in that respect. Uh, there was one option that we saw play out in front of all of us over the last week or so. There was a debate or a discussion or a laying of the ground for an amendment to the stage three tax cuts that would have been done in one budget in the first budget. Right, that was one option. Another option is uh, obviously the government has to, and this gets back to the importance of budgets, right? First budget next week, this is the economic story of the government that is going to start to be told in coherent ways. You know, the first budget is new policy priorities in the, in the parlance of budgets, right? That's, that's the election promises. It'll codify the election promises. It'll, you know, cut expenditure that they don't agree with. And the conversation of the budget has to set up then the proposition for this term that they're in, right, for the next for the next two years, right? What problems do we have? How do we get about solving them, right? That's the purpose of budgets in a way. They're accounting exercises, but they're also throw-forward exercises. So I suspect where the Treasurer's head is is we've got to now start to engage Australians in the reality of here and now. 
And the, the reality of here and now is there's all kinds of threats. There's, there's the domestic inflation problem and the budget is in structural deficit because we're spending money on all kinds of things that people support, like Medicare, like the, the National Dis Disability Insurance Scheme, like enhanced defence capability. We are in the hot zone of the Indo-Pacific. There are major calls on the budget across a range of fronts. So now it's a question of advocacy on the part of the Treasurer and the Prime Minister. It's how do you make the case for your own reforms and your own priority? And in terms of how does that like, you know, loop back to stage three, which starts in 2024, well, if you're a government, you've got the message that people don't like people going back on election promises. Well, you don't break the promise, but you actually pave your own road ahead. You, you, you are transparent with the Australian people about the problems and the priorities and you start to create a narrative about what might need to change and then you may seek a mandate, a new mandate to change it. So the interesting thing, I guess, about <laughs> the first sort of political cycle of the Albanese government and the one that they're now gearing up for is this difference between a, an old tired government expiring <laughs> and, and you arriving, not necessarily fully formed and not necessarily with voters knowing lots about you, and then, you know, where you build for your second term, which is for telling a story about yourselves so that you can win an election as a thing in itself. Here we are. We've been, we've been a government for three years. We've dealt with these things. We did what we said we would do. Now we've got to, you know, now we've got to construct some signposts to the future. And this budget, squaring all our circles, this budget is the first, is the down payment in that. It's the start and, of that conversation. And can I just round that by saying the butterfly effect of breaking a promise in the first budget cannot be underestimated because that then means that everything you say going forward is something that can be contested on whether you will actually deliver. The ability of a politician to go for the second term saying, I did what I said and this is what I'm going to do next, as opposed to someone that said, I did it to get elected and then I changed my mind, is just massive. That does not take away from the fact that Labor's soul is still sitting in the balance until such time as they find a way not to flatten our progressive tax system. So I don't think it's a case of if, I think it's a case of how, and they are going to have to find a way by leveraging the goodwill that comes with not breaking promises to take that position to the next election from a position of strength, integrity and hard work rather than just doing it now saying, no, we never meant to do it in the first place. Yeah, we might move on from stage three. There's lots of other news around as well and heaps of questions. James Bannon has a good one. Is there any good news at all? <laughs> Often hard to spot, James, but I would say the extension to the paid parental leave I thought was a really welcome announcement and some nice good news to have in there. And I'm sure there's a few other things if we really put our brains to it. Catherine, mm. has anything come to your mind recently? Pretty good, pretty good news. On the bright side, uh, I think we've had a seamless transition to power with none of the, you know, horrible theatrics and horror show that we've seen in the U in the US in terms of that whole post-truth apocalypse, right? We had an election, people voted, the government changed. There's been a transition 
the government has sort of got into gear, getting on uh, with its priorities. They're actually, uh, you know, for, for a government that's appearing very steady as she goes in the public sphere, um, they, they are actually going like the clappers. They are actually really, really working through their to-do list very quickly. And, you know, by the end of this year, the objective is to have climate targets legislation passed, tick, um, uh, have an integrity commission established that is on the way to happening, um, and, you know, to prepare the ground for the whole voice to parliament debate, which is an important debate for the country. And, and again, on the plus side, I would say the sort of opening months of this government have been a relief for migraine sufferers, shall we say. I'm a chronic migraine sufferer myself. I think. Politics over really over the last sort of more than a decade, we got a brief hiatus during the pandemic, which was fascinating and why people actually rated their politics again because this actually stopped for five whole seconds. There has been a sort of toning down of polarisation in the public sphere, which is someone who's hostage to this process. Me, I have to watch absolutely every element of this process is a very welcome relief. Now, Peter Dutton's still around trying to sort of, you know, uh, pretend that uh, nothing needs to change and we don't need an energy transition and all this sort of stuff. But I think just in terms of the general disposition of the way politics is being conducted at the moment, uh, I think what we're seeing is persuasion rather than polarisation. And I, like as a consumer of politics, um, I'm quite grateful for that shift in tone. I don't know how long it'll last, but I'm quite grateful for it so there you go there's a positive yeah Pete Mm. you've made that observation about doing like Labor's trying to do politics a bit differently I feel like the way that we saw that manifest the most has been around the job summit Mm. and not expecting everyone to come and all be on the same page but find areas of common ground and kind of work on those Mm. and, and leave some of the conflicts out to sort out later do you think that will stick I mean it seems to be going okay so so far it sticks if it works, doesn't it? You know, the, the model of division by design where we construct our majority and attack your minority can fuel a certain type of politics. The politics of collaboration fuels a different type, which is what do we agree on? Where are our differences? How might we resolve our differences? And that's kind of, on one level, it sounds like it's a boring model of politics or, a you know, a less radical version of politics is it's a politics that tries to move the nation forward. An example, Bill Shorten today has announced a review into the NDIS um, and the model of that will be to engage participants in the process and not just reform at them. You've had a similar approach taken into aged care, early learning. So you get these areas of our politics which are not about whether you're the good guy and your opponent's the bad guy, but just how do we make our system work and you invite people in. It is a different model of government. It is harder for everyone, but it is actually more productive. So can they go the distance on that? We'll see. But when they first came in, I had this analogy of the second marriage government. A lot of them have been there in 2007 to 2013 where they kind of, you know, they, they didn't really respect us or each other, and I do feel there is a different dynamic at play this time around, and I think that's a good thing. 
Yeah. Uh, the next question that I've got is from Joe Barkworth, who asks, when will the ALP realise they need to start treating the climate emergency for what it is and the cost of the crisis is getting unfathomable? Uh, I'm going to choose to take that as a reference to the floods. Uh, and in another bit of good news, my nan's house did not flood. Her whole backyard and driveway and street most of it did, but didn't get up to the floorboards, which is very exciting. My poor uncle, uh, not so lucky, unfortunately. But Catherine, you know, once in a century floods happening once a year or once every few years at the moment, along with bushfires and, and all other kinds of natural disasters fueled by the climate crisis. I mean, the costs are coming thick and fast already. They're not in 2050. They're they're very obvious right now, aren't they? Mm, well, I think that's, that's you know, that's why we sort of saw, well, at least in part, why we saw a big shift in uh, in the electorate of Australia over over just one three-year election cycle. I think, I think Australians now understand that, that uh, climate change isn't something that is just sort of speculated about in scientific reports. It is everybody's lived reality and it's posing massive challenges. We've got in this, in this country, obviously, we've got to keep up with mitigation. Mitigation efforts are crucial. Um, but we've also got a massive adaptation task because some of the climate change that has already happened will not be reversible. I hate to say these words, you know, in some sort of, particularly having been prompted by the <laughs> by the last question to be happy. Um, in terms of though, yeah, what what you do? Well, well, it's it's a it is sort of an unfathomably mind-bendingly large exercise. And obviously, the climate science would tell us that higher emissions reduction targets are more desirable than Labor's twenty thirty target, but. Even on the Labor 2030 target, the amount of transformation that is going to have to happen in this economy over a very short period of time, I think people haven't really got their minds around that. I think courtesy of living in the middle on, on the front line of the, of the climate crisis as we do in this country, I think more people understand that this is actually a thing than, than used to be the case. But the whole sort of decarbonisation of our economy over the next sort of couple of decades, that whole transformation is, is massive, as is the adaptation task that we're not talking much about. Interestingly, the, the upcoming COP conference of the parties in Egypt, the Egyptian um, sort of facilitator of the conference has pointed, I think, to uh, more discussion in Egypt about things like loss and damage and adaptation, uh, which is, you know, traditionally been a developing world perspective on climate action, but because of the ubiquity of extreme weather events all across the globe is becoming, you know, an issue that, that for a long time has dared not speak its name in climate policy, but I think will increasingly be speaking its name in climate policy. I mean... The disasters over the last sort of from, from the bushfires to now in this continent are sufficient to warrant a standing army, like a, an SES, but a formalised disaster relief workforce. Um, look, as again, as a citizen of the country, I'm very relieved to see 
a government after the last 10 years of wrecking, lying, avoidance and destruction, a government uh, turn up and get on with it, which is what's happened. Um, I'm also very gl glad and grateful as a citizen and a voter that the progressive parliament that the Australian people returned in May thus far have taken a very constructive approach to getting on with it. I'm very hopeful that that will continue because we're getting into the heavy lifting of climate policy really over the next sort of 12 or 18 months, changes to the safeguard mechanism, a transport strategy to electrify, you know, the fleet. So all kinds of really big things coming and I hope that policymakers, you know, what the Americans would call lawmakers in our system can continue to collaborate to take what action we can because, you know, uh, the, the questioner is correct. This is massive and it's upon us. Can I just say to Joe's question, I reckon the change has been a shift in focus politically from the handbrake to the accelerator. And by that I mean that over the last decade, the pressure on the party occupying the centre and particularly on Labor has been to slow things down. I think both um, the constitution of our parliament, um, not the written constitution but the way it's made up, plus these external events is going to put pressure on them to go harder and faster rather than slower and more cautiously over the next couple of terms. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, as a bit of a follow-up question, I've got one here from Ronald Smith who asks, uh, how much will Labor be able to claw back from the LNP $5 billion that Barnaby gained to get agreement before Glasgow? I have noticed discretionary grants, you know, have been talked about from that, you know, the audit and going through the budget line by line for wastes and rot, but there was, you know, billions of dollars essentially promised to Barnaby uh, I'm not, he, he gave a figure at one point, didn't he, Catherine? Um, yeah, look, I think some of it we'll see uh, reprioritised in the budget, although, again, you know, without uh, seemingly being ridiculous and pointing podcast listeners to a podcast from last weekend, but I'll just do it quickly anyway. I did have quite a detailed conversation with Catherine King uh, in relation to some of these issues. I didn't express it as in terms of Barnaby's boondoggles, which I have, you know, in the past, but... But we talked around this issue. I think, look, there's there's certainly discretionary grants, definitely uh, on the chopping block. I think uh, I, I think I flagged earlier that there'll be a reprioritisation, if that's even a word, of infrastructure funding, which basically just means shifting expenditure between years, depending on priorities. So it'll be interesting to sort of get into that at a, you know at a granular level. What does that mean? What's what's not happening that was going to happen, and vice versa, which we can obviously start to do post budget. There's also, I think, uh, been some reviews put in place. Catherine King has put some reviews in place over you know things like the inland rail, for example. There was a very controversial extension mooted of the inland rail to Gladstone, which a lot of environmental campaigners were quite worried about. Um, for example, I think, uh, you know, Catherine King's got Kerry Schott, who's an infrastructure and energy expert, to kind of look at the project. So, look, are we going to see a whole kind of, you know, burning down of the barn, as it were, on budget night? Look, I don't know. I don't know that, that it will necessarily be that comprehensive. And obviously there will be infrastructure funding that is supported by both the major parties. So we, we just don't have enough of a sense, or I don't uh, have enough of a sense pre-budget as to how wholesale 
that that kind of lopping off of projects will be. But I suspect we'll be in a slightly better mm. position uh, next Wednesday. Uh, the next question I've got is from Heather, who says that the essential poll results show quite fine detail about tax and spending cuts debate compared with Resolve um, and just asking, I guess, for a bit more explanation of those um, results or if you've got anything that digs down further into the crosstabs about, you know, you went, I think, into a breakdown, Pete, there about um, the political background of people who support um, changes to the tax cuts, but is there anything else we know about who's supporting and opposing? Oh, we've got lots of detail in here. Um, One of the interesting ones that Catherine picked up, which was surprise, surprise, the more you thought you were going to get out of the tax changes, the less inclined you were to support um, a a breaking of um, of said promise. Um, There's a bit of a partisan skew. One of the things that my colleague Tony Douglas did point out is that the the, the challenge is that both if you if you stick to the flattening of the tax base, you are very exposed to Greens and Progressives at the next election. And if you break your promise, you're very exposed to the coalition saying they're just like any other party. And I think just thinking through how you can manage and hold that centre ground is going to be, it's been something that, um, you know, Albanese Labor have done very effectively to date. And that is probably the challenge. I won't bag another pollster except to say that Resolve have refused to join the Australian Polling Council, which most of the other major polling companies do, and we think that's disappointing. That's the way that we all share our methodology and and have a degree of transparency, which was an initiative we took after the last um, federal election. Yeah, just the crosstabs. The crosstabs are really interesting, and it's it's sort of, as Pete said, the bit I picked up in the news reporting uh, today was that, yeah, the more you think you're a beneficiary of the tax cuts, obviously the less inclined you are to forgive a breaking of an election promise, which seems obvious, but it's but you know we can all speculate about that. It's quite useful to see data that that leads you to that point. But there were there's other there's other nuances that are actually quite interesting in the crosstabs, I think, in this data this week. It is not just that point. Just lastly before we go, I did want to touch on the voice to parliament, Catherine. You know, I've seen a bit of back and forth about that. Julian Lisa was on Radio National breakfast this morning and the coalition, you know, hasn't taken this to party room yet and it's unclear whether or not they'll get more or less like a conscience vote or if there'll be a party um, kind of position on this. But that's a a really big thing coming up for next year, basically. Uh, How far along is the government in terms of getting the, the structure in place for a referendum? I think it's all sort of ticking over in the background because obviously the government does want to accelerate this progress towards this outcome uh, over the coming months. Uh, So it is kind of ticking away in the background and it will only intensify as the months go on. It is going to be difficult, I think, for for this referendum to carry if uh, elements of the coalition really go to war against it. Uh, I think that does complicate things, although I know all the premiers in the country are on side. And also notably the move on the Greens to to, to articulate that they didn't intend campaigning against yeah. it was a big That's important. step forward, wasn't it? It is yeah. important, yeah, and, uh, and Sarah Hanson-Young was very strong on that uh, last week when there was a suggestion, I think from an erroneous media, media report, that uh, the Greens spokesperson was considering signing up with the with the no case 
uh, Sarah Hanson-Young came out the next day and made it very clear that she would be campaigning vociferously for yes and she expected her colleagues to do likewise. That's it for today. Uh, Thank you all for listening to the recording of our live show, Pole Position, which is hosted by the Australia Institute. Just a reminder, I set it up the top, but you can look at the slides discussed during the session by going to theessentialreport.com. This particular episode was produced by Daniel Simo. Thank you, Daniel. The executive producers of the show are Molly Glassie and Miles Martignoni. See you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.